Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest-growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. When it comes to delivering customer support, there are some things you don't want teams to hear. Intercom's streamlined support platform clears up space for more organized workflows and peace of mind. Our business messenger uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Who doesn't like the sound of that? Intercom. Less of this. And more of this. To learn more, go to intercom.com support. The Associated Press reporting about you saying, quote, McDaniel declined to encourage former President Donald Trump to run for the White House in 2024, saying the GOP would stay, quote, neutral in his next presidential primary. Trump's fervent base continues to demand loyalty to the former president, even as some party officials acknowledge that Trump's norm-shattering behavior alienated elements of the coalition the GOP needs to win future elections. The president says he's going to be focused on 2022. What are you thinking about the potential for a comeback for him in 2024? You know, when I talked to the AP, I said it's too early to be talking about 2024. And of course, the RNC has to remain neutral. The president knows that. Everyone who knows the RNC knows that that's our role. It's actually in our bylaws um, as we prepare for 2024. But I know the president, as every other Republican and leadership in our party, is focused on 2022. And how do we take back the House? And how do we take back the Senate? And that's going to be the first step to winning back the White House in 2024. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. With just one week to go before the start of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, it has become quickly evident that the GOP is not done with the former president. Is, I want to switch subjects on you now, is the GOP still the party of Trump for the foreseeable future? And do you see it at some point over the next three, four years moving away from President Trump? 
The GOP is the party that nominated Donald Trump, and the reason why it did, and ultimately got him elected, and he got 75 million votes, is because you have tens of millions of Americans that feel this economy isn't working for people like them, that feel socially displaced, even like strangers in their own country. In the traumatic aftermath of the January 6th riots, there was a brief window of bipartisan fury where even some of Trump's most hardened supporters were willing to castigate Donald Trump. Trump's actions were so fucking egregious and so disgusting that they were impossible to ignore. The red wall of support that had protected Trump time and again was finally beginning to crumble. Mitch McConnell, the Senate's evil overlord, saw a moment to flex his own power and purge Trump from the party and unshackle the GOP from this MAGA insanity once and for all. The last time the Senate convened, we had just reclaimed the Capitol from violent criminals who tried to stop Congress from doing our duty. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful McConnell was done with Donald Trump. The former president had lost both the House and the Senate during his term, and then the White House. His approval rating was abysmal. Never mind the fact that he had just spent the past two months trying to overturn the election and had incited a fucking mob to storm the Capitol. If this were any other moment in history with any other person other than Trump, his fucking ass would have been hanging from the Capitol dome. I put it to you, Greg. Isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? Well, you can do what you want to us, but we're not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. Well, not so fast. While few GOP lawmakers have defended his conduct, even fewer have dared to back the impeachment push. The 10 House Republicans who did join Democrats in voting to impeach Trump faced a fierce backlash. And in the Senate, MAGA diehards were flooding offices with angry phone calls and demanding their senators stand behind Mr. Trump. When Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, raised an objection to Mr. Trump's trial, arguing that trying a former president would be unconstitutional, 45 of the 50 Republicans in the Senate, including Mr. McConnell, supported his challenge. This impeachment is nothing more than a partisan exercise designed to further divide the country. Democrats claim to want to unify the country, but impeaching a former president, a private citizen, is the antithesis of unity. Democrats brazenly appointing a pro-impeachment Democrat to preside over the trial is not fair or impartial and hardly encourages any kind of unity in our country. By Wednesday, the Republican Party itself released a statement outlining its official position against an impeachment trial. Well, fucking A. And just like that, the GOP reattached itself to Trump like a barnacle on a whale. Or perhaps Trump is the barnacle or the hemorrhoid that has affixed itself to the GOP. Either way, they are stuck together until the end, Thelma and Louise style, and they'll ride over the cliff to a fiery political death. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Sorry, but that's the only way that this is going to end. Anyone who thought otherwise 
has not been paying attention to what's happening at the state level. In nearly every case, the state after state with a GOP majority, those in power aren't just Trump supporters, but diehard MAGA fanatics. The inmates are now running the asylum. The Wyoming Republican Party plans to censor Liz Cheney for her impeachment vote. In Hawaii, the official state GOP Twitter feed called QAnon believers fucking patriots. In Oregon, home to Clive Bundy and all manner of insane militia members, the GOP state party tweeted that the Capitol insurrection was a false flag operation. In Arizona, the GOP has officially censored Cindy McCain, Jeff Flake, and Governor Doug Ducey for daring to criticize Donald Trump. And finally, in Texas, the GOP used the Q slogan in an official tweet announcing, We are Storm, just after the riots. On April the 21st of 1836, the devil whispered to the Texas warriors, You cannot withstand the coming storm. But today, these Texas warriors whisper back, We are the storm. Any hope for rational debate has vanished. Republican lawmakers are terrified of their own constituents and terrified of Donald Trump. Those trying to cling to some middle ground, like the cowardly Marco Rubio, are finding themselves getting pulled apart like a broken action figure. Unfortunately for American democracy, you're either all in or you're all out. Meanwhile, Florida Representative Matt Goetz went on the offensive, traveling to Wyoming on Thursday to attack Liz Cheney in her own fucking state. I love Wyoming! I think if Liz Cheney had a rally with all of her supporters, they could likely meet inside one of the elevators in the Capitol and still have plenty of room for social distancing. And although disturbing revelations keep trickling out about Georgia's QAnon congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, the odds seem much greater that the GOP will punish Cheney for saying that Trump incited an insurrection rather than punishing Greene for calling for the assassination of elected officials. Well, Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney's vote to impeach President Trump has sparked a political firestorm against the third-ranking House Republican. In Washington, some Republican House members, including Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale, are circulating a petition calling for Cheney's removal as chair of the House Republican Conference. This frightening militancy is happening amidst a much larger wholesale abandonment of the current GOP as a whole. According to The Hill, more than 30,000 voters who had been registered members of the Republican Party have changed their voter registration in the weeks following the Capitol riot. Iceberg, run ahead! The massive wave of defections is a virtually unprecedented exodus that could spell major trouble for a party that is trying to find its way after losing the presidential race and the Senate majority. This represents what could be just the tip of a massive iceberg. The 30,000 who have left the GOP live in just a few states that report voter registration data on a weekly basis. In short, the party is melting down to its absolute core of diehards. But you're seeing these belief systems starting to sort of metastasize across our entire electorate in certain portions in certain states. So I, I think that's a real issue. And listen, it's hard to talk facts with people who don't want to talk facts, but they do believe in almost a messianic conspiracy theory, which is QAnon or other types of things like that. So it's very difficult, very difficult. And I don't know how we break through unless we use 
just blunt force facts at this point. And it's these people left, the most strident and frankly, the most insane, who are now pulling the levers of power. While this may spell good news for Democrats looking ahead for 2022, in that the GOP will continue to only move farther away from the mainstream, it's overall terrible for the two-party system that defines our nation. The only solution, it seems, will be that the GOP fracturing into two, with one side becoming the party of white nationalism and conspiracy, and the other something akin to the Lincoln Project. What did you expect? Welcome, Sonny. Make yourself at home. Marry my daughter. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the new West. You know. Morons. <laughs> In the midst of this GOP schism, the Biden administration is continuing to push forward a startlingly progressive agenda that aims to repair many of the more disturbing excesses of the Trump era. In addition, they must navigate through uncharted waters when dealing with this new armed wing of the Republican Party. There is no handbook for how to best deal with QAnon wingnuts like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but it seems the Biden administration has adopted a strategy that amounts to simple common sense. Do not feed the trolls. When asked to comment about MGT's recent behavior, Biden's press secretary, Jennifer Psaki, replied curtly, We don't, and I'm not going to speak about her further in this briefing room. From an administration which vowed to fight disinformation, it may seem surprising, but it shows that they have learned their lesson from Trump's early rise to power in 2015, when unfettered attention to his every utterance, no matter how fucking outrageous, was the fuel that propelled him to victory. Green, like Trump, thrives on attention, positive or negative, it doesn't matter. Because we don't want to elevate uh, conspiracy theories further in the briefing room, so I'm going to speak to, I'm going to leave it at that. What's important for Green and her fellow travelers is the ability to get the president or his proxies to stoop to her level to fight. That's the point, because it elevates her position even when she's talking about Jewish space lasers causing forest fires. To discuss it is to validate their position. And at a certain point, crazy is just fucking crazy, and you can't stop it from seeping out. Were you trying to get crazy with this, see? Don't you know I'm loco? And now, for the main event. We now have entered the twilight zone of politics, and there is no precedent or roadmap for us to follow. Each step will be made into a brave new political world where the rules are being written as we speak. To help me navigate through what's to come in the Biden administration, I reached out to Jelani Cobb, the longtime New Yorker staff writer, author, and commentator seamlessly mixes culture, history, race, and politics into a steady stream of insightful and deeply probing articles for the magazine and offers a rare window and insight into the abilities and frailties of Joe Biden. So let's listen now to that conversation. On January 27th, in response to an NBC news story suggesting Proud Boys founder Enrique Tarrio had a long history as an undercover informant for both law enforcement and the federal government, you wrote, from the people who brought you COINTELPRO, 
A new series featuring intrigue, betrayal, and what? White people? Discuss this with me and what you meant as I find the twist extremely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because, you know, I mean, I was, and I should just be saying, I was tongue in cheek, but, um, or, or, or it might be accurate. It, it was a strange twist to see that this person who had been this, ahead of this polarizing organization that's so connected to the radical white nationalist politics that we've seen emerge in the last, uh, you know, five years is, uh, a police informant or has worked as a police informant. And, you know, for the movements that I've written about in the 1960s, you know, including Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, as well as other movements that were more radical, you know, the Black Panther Party and so on. Uh, you know, lots of those people were police informants. Lots of those movements were infiltrated, you know, with people who were police informants. So it was a little bit ironic to see that this was happening with the Proud Boys. Um, and I don't know what the implications of it are. I don't know if it was connected to some bigger, you know, initiative or whatever. But it was, uh, I mean, it was kind of an amazing thing to see. Well, explain to everybody, um, COINTELPRO, I believe you're referring right. to as an acronym, right, for Counterintelligence Program. Counterintelligence explain program. to my listeners exactly yeah. what it is. So uh, the FBI under Jager Hoover had a project which was called COINTELPRO um, and was a counterintelligence program that was uh, initially organized at gaining intelligence about the civil rights movement because there was this concern that the civil rights movement was riddled with communists, uh, which turned out to not be true, uh, but it was a belief you know, among uh, people who were on the right and people who were in intelligence circles that they needed to be concerned about this, particularly around Martin Luther King. Uh, as it moved on, it went further into the 19, was starting in the 1950s, going further into the 1960s, it became an active, disruptive uh, kind of operation in which uh, letters were sent anonymously uh, information was used to pit one group against another group. You know, the factions, especially the Black Panther Party was the most notable one. Um, the American Indian Movement also was another, uh, in which uh, the movements that were within the frame of constitutional free speech, but nonetheless were being disrupted by um, the federal government and something that was in excess of their mandate. So they did not have the authority to do the things they did. And, you know, it prompted a lot of reconsideration about how intelligence operates uh, in the United States afterward. Uh, one of the more notorious things was that Martin Luther King's hotel rooms were bugged uh, and the audio transcripts of his interactions with other women and extramarital interactions he had with women um, were recorded and sent to his wife, you know, and so... You know, I don't think that falls anywhere in the purview of American intelligence. Uh, but that, things like that happened, as well as kind of much, much grander scale things. Well, the whole thing, of course, was just designed to interrupt. It was right. to interrupt his life, right? Because obviously we all know happy wife, happy life. Right. Um, if, in fact, that you disrupt the peace at home, that certainly will affect and possibly their belief system. Don't forget the... The intelligence community today 
is so far advanced from mm-hmm. what we used to be, mm-hmm. right? Uh, their feeling was if you disrupted at home, the person is more likely to make a mistake out on the street, and then therefore they could nail him for communist insurrection. I mean, it's funny. Everything was communist insurrection yeah. in those days. It was. I mean, it was. It was like. But the interesting thing about it is when you go to the FBI archives. I mean, you don't even have to go to Washington D.C. You know, I mean, much. I don't. I don't think you could now because of COVID. Um, you know, those offices are probably closed. But uh, back in the day, you know, but pre-pandemic, you could walk into the FBI offices to the reading room and just start pulling up FBI files. Uh, and there's a certain number of them that are available on the FBI's website. And it, it was an obsession. It was kind of like everyone. You've like if you're interested in movie stars, just start picking up the movie stars of the 1950s and 1960s. There's an FBI dossier on all of them. You know, boxers. You know, the the heavyweight champion had an FBI dossier. But any any person who you can think of uh, had an FBI dossier because there was a concern that they were somehow or another connected to communism. Uh, I had a student one time who wrote, who was a history major, uh, and he wrote his senior thesis, which was an amazing uh, piece of work, on his grandfather's FBI dossier. His grandfather had been a labor organizer. Uh, and so he pulls up all the stuff that's in that dossier and, and used it as a historical source. Uh, and so it's like everywhere with a particular intensity that they were using to disrupt the, the freedom movements of the 1960s and 1970s. You know, it's funny because when I saw your quote, the first thing that came to my mind was a movie that I actually really, truly enjoy. It's one of the greatest movies I've seen in a long time by Spike Lee, Black mm-hmm. Klansman. It was yeah, for yeah. some unknown mm-hmm. reason. Your quote just sort of <laughs> triggered um, the memory of that movie, which I just, again, I think it's just fabulous. It movie. seems like, the, I mean, it seems like it, it seems like the plot of that movie, because also, I mean, and the, and the other thing I think that brought to mind was the Chappelle show skit, where the black person ah, who's in the class. The right? best. The best. Right. And, 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 and it's like when people see the Proud Boys and they see their president and they're looking at that guy going, wait, wait, what? Um, and then it turns out that he has a past as an informant and it just, you know, becomes even more bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. But the larger theme of the recent Frontline special in which you appeared on Joe Biden was how the crisis and tragedy forged his political identity. Mm-hmm. How much do you think of Biden's ability to project empathy in the face of Trump's what we'll all call extremely callous disregard for life mm-hmm. played into this theme and basically put Biden over the top in this previous election? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting. You know, there's the old saying about boxers. They say styles make fights, you know, um, and, you know, these are people who their personal styles could not be more contrasting. And I don't know, like, what the big picture is, like, how much people uh, connected to that in the election. But I can tell you that there were some specific moments where I saw his ability to empathize with people, move voters in a way uh, that I don't think that Donald Trump would ever have been able to do. So one of the things that, you know, that stands out in my mind was in South Carolina, you know, before the South Carolina primary when uh, Joe Biden was there and there was a, a town hall, I think CNN did it. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure CNN did this town hall. And people are just talking. And um, and then Reverend Anthony Thompson stands up and, you know, has a question that he wants Biden to answer. And he says, uh, what uh, role does faith play in your politics? 
know, there was this connection. Anybody in Charleston knew the connection between Anthony Thompson and Joe Biden, which is that uh, Anthony Thompson's wife, Myra, had been one of the nine people killed in the basement of Emanuel AME Church by white supremacist Dylan Roof. Uh, and Joe Biden had come there. He had come there to Charleston uh, to, along with the president, as a gesture of solidarity with the grieving community there. But that also was the same week that Bo Biden had died. Uh, and so these two people met under these circumstances of profound grief. And Biden was talking about that and how faith operates. And there are hundreds of people in this room, and it's just like two people. And for anybody else who was there, you understood that like this person has seen the worst that life can throw at you and has responded with the ability to, to talk to other people who are struggling. Uh, and which is something I don't think Donald Trump was ever would ever be able to do. And so for people who were aware of that, yeah, I think that was like a big advantage for Joe Biden. Well, because Joe Biden, as you just stated, believes in faith. He believes in God. Mm -hmm. And to me personally, it doesn't make a difference who you pray to mm -hmm. as long as you pray to somebody that you believe in something greater than yourself. The problem with Donald Trump is that he is the greatest thing in his own mind, mm -hmm. that there is nothing higher, that he is from a divine intervention, right? That he is, uh, you know, basically the spawn of God. And so why would I have to basically have faith because I am the faith? It's a really demented thing. I talk a lot about it in my book, in Disloyal, where I talk about this narcissistic sociopathic disorder. And you're right. Joe Biden has profound empathy considering what he's gone to. I mean, the funniest thing is when I was sitting with Trump in his office and he asked me to go to Rona and to speak to any of his siblings, uh, specifically um, Judge Barry, mm -hmm. to see whether or not that they had his um, confirmation photo. And when we were able to find that confirmation photo, that became basically his connection to Christianity, mm -hmm. right? And um, I'll never forget, he wanted it shown up on the walls. He wanted it put out on his Twitter feed. He wanted it put everywhere in order to show that he had this connection to uh, Norman Peel. Oh, wow. Vi Vincent Norman Peel, mm -hmm. right? And that this was his church and that this was his connection. The funniest thing is that was the one and only time that he had ever been to the church was mm -hmm. to be there for that confirmation picture. So, yeah, it's very difficult to have but it's also funny, though, because that didn't really <laughs> matter. People were willing to buy that, which I always, you know, found so strange, especially at the beginning, because, you know, when he was talking to Rick Warren and, you know, Rick Warren, you know, raised what I thought was a fairly straightforward question that any, you know, certainly any clergy person would ask a, a presidential candidate uh, when he, I think he's, the question was something like, do you pray? Or do you ask for forgiveness? And Trump said, I don't sin. I don't do anything wrong, which I don't really, I don't understand how that conversation needed to go any further. Like the entire tenet of Christianity <laughs> is that we are all sinners and that we have to, you know, seek redemption.
Right, isn't there? It was. I'll never forget. There was a friend of mine who's a evangelical preacher. Said to me, you know, after obviously I acknowledged the mistakes that I had made, the sins that I had committed on behalf of, you know, not just Donald Trump, but you know, in furtherance of Donald Trump. But I did them. Was that you have to f- learn to forgive yourself? And I try every day. But the comment that he made was the last truly innocent man. Right, the last man who. Um, but I noticed on your Twitter feed that you refer mm-hmm. to Trump as the previous dude. Mm-hmm. Is that you're doing your part to deny him uh, personhood and the ability to command the news cycle mm-hmm. and maintain public focus? What's behind the line? No, so there was, I mean, it was that a comment should have been a tell kind of to everyone, um, but it was not. I think comedic, which is the practical reason is that the Trump people are Googling Trump on Twitter and looking for fights. And so this doesn't show up on their radar. Uh, And the other part was just, he seemed to be completely enamored of the amount of attention he got, even from people who hated him. That even if you didn't like him or you thought he was a terrible person, you still had to talk about him. That he would do things that would make sure he was always you know, near the front of your mind. And by not referring to him by name is just a kind of exercise in taking him out of that space. Uh, and so also it's kind of interesting that I don't have to say Trump or, um, you know, POTUS or any of those things because just saying the previous dude, lots of people knew who I was talking about. You know, what's interesting is that Donald Trump ever since he was John Barron, his own publicist, always believed and continues to this day to believe that, and it goes right back to the narcissistic sociopathic disorder I constantly talk about, no press is bad press. Mm -hmm. He truly believes that. He didn't care, like the creation of the birther movement by Mm -hmm. him when he went public and very public about Barack Obama not being born in the United States, not being capable of being president because he's Kenya born. He knew it not to be true, but it didn't matter because the following day, and he bet me on it, the following day, front page across the spectrum of of newspapers and on television was Donald Trump, you know, denies, you know, uh, Barack Obama's birthplace Mm -hmm. and on and on. And Again, you know, he truly doesn't believe it, despite the fact how racist, how, you know, um, how horrific, right, that this behavior is, as long as he's getting what he needs to fulfill his fragile ego, and, and as long as his name is showing up front and center in newspapers and on television, he was satisfied, and he thought that it was a good thing. Can I, can I ask something? Like, I wondered this. Um what was January 6th like for you? Because you know the mechanics and the kind of operating, one, you know the person, uh, but what was watching the Capitol be overrun by his people like for you? Well, it really elicited two responses from me. The first was the fact that I had worked in Washington uh, in 1987 and 1988 when I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley Mm -hmm. uh, in the Rayburn building. And um, I love the Capitol. I find the Capitol to be like a museum. Mm -hmm. Every time I walked into it, um, I felt like I was in a really magical and a special place. It's almost like it's 
almost like democracy just put into a little sphere, right? And that was our capital. So the fact that these people could violate and desecrate something that's so personal to me was very troubling. But then I start, the second part is what I believed was happening in terms of Donald Trump and why this happened and how this happened. And for me, I know Donald Trump. I was actually surprised that none of the senators, Republican or Democrat, who are now charged with uh, the impeachment trial have reached out because, as I stated when I spoke before the Honorable Elijah Cummings uh, at the House Oversight Committee, Donald Trump speaks in code like mm-hmm. a mob boss. Mm-hmm. I talk about it in the very first chapter of my book. He speaks like a mob boss in code. If you, and if this one is not as codified as some of the other things that he says, but there's still nuances to it. Donald Trump was ecstatic to see these 10-plus thousand protesters, insurrectionists, wearing MAGA hats, wearing MAGA flags with Trump on the back of it, whether it was the guy who was foolishly dressed like Chewbacca in a bikini <laughs> um, or some of the other guys that you know were just all masked up or decked out in military gear. He was ecstatic to see that they were doing it because they were doing it on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to what Donald Trump was saying, he was blowing this dog whistle to these supporters when he said, we need to go to the Capitol. We need to take over the Capitol. And then you have his idiot scion, Don Jr., or the ridiculous drunken Rudy Giuliani, all standing up there inciting, or Josh Hawley, another fucking asshole, mm-hmm. right? Standing up there inciting, you know, this crowd hoping that exactly what happened was going to happen. So it bothered me from the Donald Trump side, knowing that he was enjoying this, actually thinking that he had a chance of taking over the Capitol, of creating a coup Mm -hmm. in our country. And the saddest thing is people don't realize this. We were so close on January 6th to losing our democracy to having Donald Trump legitimately take over this country, the first thing he would do is grab a hold of the Constitution, have it raised from the vault, and he would tear it. He would Mm -hmm. tear it into pieces and then burn it because Donald Trump does not want a democracy. Donald Trump wants an autocracy and Mm -hmm. or a monarchy. He wants to be what Vladimir Putin is to Russia. He wants to be able to send out the military to surround those people that are protesting, like what they're doing with Navalny. He wants to be like the Kim, like Kim Jong Un, or he wants to be like, um, you know, Maduro or any of these other dictators. That's who he is. That's what he wants to be. So the notion that he would have to run again for president. Had he won, the next four years would have been nothing but trying to figure out how to become president again for another eight years or another 12 years, something that he had had a conversation with and made another inarticulate or fucking stupid comment to Xi Jinping in China when he goes, yeah, we should have 12 years. I should have 12 more years because I'm doing such a great job. I mean, that's just Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the weird thing is that, you know, I saw the Kevin McCarthy photo um, and it's like none of the political laws apply. You know, usually like Mitt Romney, look at Mitt Romney in 2012. You know, the GOP dropped him like a hot rock 
you know, as soon as the election returns came in, it was clear that he hadn't won. People were already stabbing him in the back and going, Mitt who? Like they, like they never heard of the guy. And here we have a dude who lost re-election, which is harder for a president to do than win re-election. Uh, then on top of that, had brought down the House and brought down the Senate. So the Republican Party lost all three branches of government. And this guy is still making a pilgrimage to Florida to pay his respects. I mean, it is like a mob boss kind of thing where it was like, this makes no sense whatsoever. Like this is clearly, it's like uh, watching a boxing match where one guy gets knocked out and the ref runs over and raises his hand. <laughs> right. Or the guy who just woke up after being knocked out, turns around, stands up and goes to grab the belt, right. the championship <laughs> exactly. belt. Right. It's just <laughs> that freaking crazy. Exactly. <laughs> but but uh, Jelani, one of Joe Biden's first executive orders as president was to continue the work in replacing Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman, right, on the $20 bill. Predictably, Fox News, it's losing its mind, saying we're now canceling great American presidents. Discuss with me why you believe President Biden chose this initiative to be one of his first executive orders. Yeah, I mean, it's strange. I mean, there's no... Real, um, I was not a person that was particularly excited about it because I don't know that putting someone on money is the the tribute that we pay for them, you know, necessarily the best tribute for them. But I wasn't opposed to it. I thought it was an interesting thing. Uh, but for the fact of Andrew Jackson, you know, being a slaveholder, you know, start with that. The fact that Andrew Jackson oversaw a slaughter of indigenous people uh, before he got to the presidency. Uh, the fact that Andrew Jackson uh, seized Florida in 1819 as a means of preventing people from escaping slavery and then oversaw the Trail of Tears when he was in office. And so, I mean, if you're looking at all of those things, well, orchestrated the Trail of Tears, it actually happened uh, under Van Buren. But if you are looking at all of those things, yeah, of course there's a, a, a a criticism to be made of those of those behaviors, uh, and the idea that somebody could be great outside of those things means that the the lives of these people didn't matter very much. Uh, and so Harriet Tubman, you know, did not kill anyone. You know, Harriet Tubman did not. What she did was attempt to bring people to freedom, which is supposed to be the cornerstone ideal of the United States. Uh, and so I think that people recognize that also. It was the move to not have her placed on the $20 bill was a kind of presidential pettiness uh, that Donald Trump exhibited. And so I think it's probably just kind of you know making a symbolic statement that you're moving away. Uh, you're reversing, you know, you know, what they did at that point. The other thing that I think is that I keep waiting to see these $20 bills come out uh, because they're going to be people on YouTube uh, setting them on fire as a way to own the libs. You know, it's like, uh, let me, I'm going to burn these $20 bills with Harriet Tubman on them just to prove that I'm a good American. Uh, and you certainly somebody's going to do that. Yeah, that would probably make them more stupid American. It's still $20. And me personally, yeah. I'm actually, right? I mean, that's right. I'm going to show you, I'm going to burn the money that I worked so hard in order to have him right now with the pandemic money's tight so if there's an idiot yeah. out there that wants to burn the money don't burn it just give it away 
right? Yeah. That's that's my opinion. Donate it to some to some charity. That's that's what I think. But I'm actually proud of Joe Biden for doing this. To be very honest with you, um, as far as I'm concerned, I don't really care who's on our currency. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it was freaking Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. right? It makes no difference to me as long as it's somebody that portrays something as you appropriately stated. As long as it portrays something that's positive, mm-hmm. right? And she certainly was a positive figure and it would be nice to have something other than right old white men mm-hmm. from the past on our on our currency. I mean, we have the ability to change it. So I don't know why Fox News is so, you know, upended about it. To me, it's just simply because it's a woman, and I believe it's because it's a black woman. That's just my oh, opinion. Oh, yeah, sure. That's, um, that's, that's absolutely what it is. Right. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't be wrong to have somebody who's been great in American history to be placed on our currency, right? I mean, it's like the notion that you would think about putting a black woman on a $20, <laughs> on any bill. It's just to Fox to Fox News and to some of these people, it's just so abhorrent as a concept. I, I don't, I personally don't understand their, you know, their position on it. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, I mean, it's, it's a very kind of weird, weird um, hill to die on. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing it, and you know, when it comes, when it does happen, I'll, uh, you know, take a photograph of one and put it on my wall. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, I'll tell you something. I find it ironic, in all fairness, that Donald Trump chose Andrew Jackson as his most admired president. You remember when he when he stated that he really yeah. is such a fucking idiot. I, I mean, I, I, I assume that was Steve Bannon. Like that was that was Bannon's doing. You know, it's Steve Bannon. It's Steve Miller. They're they're both racists yeah, to the but, core. But, I mean, does, I mean, did Trump actually like know enough about Andrew Jackson to actually care before any of this happened? Pro- the answer is probably not. He probably read some cliff note version, mm-hmm. right, about the president's popularist appeal, and he glossed over the um, insane racism and brutality towards the native people. Um, I'm curious if one of these reasons Biden chose right to push this through was also to repudiate Trump on his choice of presidential role models and to send Jackson back to the bad side of history. <laughs> you think it was point. that thoughtful? That's a good point. But, you know, the other thing that I thought about Andrew Jackson, which uh, occurred to me for a completely different reason, I was talking uh, to um, someone about my class. Uh, Andrew Jackson also threatened to hang his vice president. And so maybe that was what his thing was. You know, Andrew Jackson had a conflict <laughs> with John Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, uh, and threatened to have him hung. Uh, and so in this case, Trump threatened to hang Mike Pence. He had his, his people do it for him. Uh, but maybe there was more, more similarity between the two of them than we knew. Yeah, he's really some piece of work. Jelani, on a recent episode of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah, who I'm a big fan of, asked you how optimistic you were about the future. Mm-hmm. And you replied, I am as optimistic as a boxer going into the late rounds. Mm-hmm. Curious how you maintain that optimism in the wake of an election where half of the electorate doesn't believe in basic facts mm-hmm. and they still question the entire election. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the notable things that um, I took from your uh testimony, congressional testimony, was when uh, 
someone was attempting, was making a ridiculous, I don't remember the person, but trying to make a ridiculous defense of Donald Trump saying that, that uh, she was a black woman whose father was from the South. And, you know, if he was a racist, she wouldn't have been around him. And you said, you know, you, I could say the same thing as the son of Holocaust survivors. Um, and I thought that stayed with me because I thought, you know, it's notable that you have a particular vantage point. You can have a particular vantage point on the world when you're looking at the great historical tragedies. And the great historical tragedies put the things we're dealing with right now into the proper perspective. And so uh, you, when I talk about when I talk about that, you know, I look at 74 million uh, people voting for Donald Trump despite the kinds of chaos and madness that he orchestrated uh, in the past four years. Uh, and all of the people who would kind of die hard, they want more of that. Uh, and the ignorance that's being broadcast, you know, on uh, cable news networks, you know, particularly Fox and other places. But I also look at the the dedication and perseverance of people who survived Jim Crow, who survived slavery. My father had a third grade education in Georgia. Um, you know, left Georgia and came to New York because he wanted his children to have better opportunities. I have a much better life than my father ever had. And my optimism is a kind of tribute to those people, uh, to the people who really endured difficulty, people who really knew what difficulty was. Uh, and so that's what I meant when I said the optimism of a boxer going into the late rounds. If you're going into the late rounds, you know that there's more of the fight behind you than there is in front of you. You know, it was like, oh, right. We got through nine rounds. You know, we just got to get through 10, 11, and 12. And so, yep, the championship, the championship rounds, championship rounds, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel you. I mean, and, and I understand exactly the point that you bring up. You know, my, as my father being a Holocaust survivor, um, we didn't have racism in our house. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it, people are like, well, you know, what does that really mean? It, it just wasn't permitted. I had friends, even as a young child, of all races, religions, creeds, color, right? Um, and it was one of the things that my father taught us all, my, myself and my siblings, that you have no idea how cruel the world can be. Mm -hmm. Remember that he was just a child. He was part of that uberkinder, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, I, I often wonder just how he had the strength to get through the things that they got through mm -hmm. in order to survive, which talks about really the human spirit and the will. And then I start to think, you know, and, and you start to really get introspective and you think about of the six million Jews who died, could you imagine the brain power? that was lost for no reason at all, simply mm -hmm. because of hatred. And then I say the same thing about slavery, the number of people that died, whether it was in transport to the mm -hmm. United mm -hmm. States or while they were slaves here. And I wonder, you know, just how much intellect and how much better our world would actually be if, in fact, that none of these people died, that they weren't killed, right? And they were given an opportunity to be the best that they can be. I wonder whether or not we could have already cured cancer or whether or not this pandemic would have been over in 20 minutes because somebody would have had the cure. Mm -hmm. We don't know. And that's the shame because human life, and we only live really for a blip of a moment in time. Mm -hmm. And to 
to behave in the way that Donald Trump behaves, it just, it's so against humanity that you're, like you just said, it blows my mind that 70 plus million Americans, a million Americans could vote for somebody. And I don't give a shit whether you like Joe Biden or you don't, and I, whether you give a shit about Donald Trump with his fucking economic policies and getting rid of, you know, every single government agency like the EPA or getting rid of the Paris Climate Accord. And, you know, I believe that immigration is a problem. Sure. These are all problems, but the way that you, the way that you deal with it is not to destroy it. It's to fix it. Donald Trump didn't fix shit. All he did is turn around and do executive orders on popularist views. Yeah. Immigration needs to be fixed. We have an immigration problem in this country, but that doesn't mean that you separate children from parents, throw them into cages, give them a mylar vest to wear and a bottle of water and tell them that we're sending you back to your country where people are being slaughtered. I mean, the man lacks humanity. I mean, it, but, it, but it is astounding. I, I will say this. I mean, it sounds, I hope, I hope it doesn't sound contradictory to what we were talking about before, but it is astounding and frightening. You know, for me, you know, so I grew up in Queens, you know, and I know you grew up in Long Island. Um, and, you know, so so Trump was a, a fixture, like, long before he was a national um, figure. And when people thought that my my issues with Trump were partisan, because uh, I'm a person that tends to vote for Democrats, I would always point out that, you know, I had the same criticisms of him when he was a Democrat. So it wasn't just the fact that he became a Republican. It was about other things. Um, but it it is astounding and frightening to think that we could have a country where we witness um, children being torn out of the arms of their parents and then just move on. You know, that was something that really shifted. I thought I understood, you know, but when I saw that, and then even when it was like newborn children, you know, infants, toddlers, uh, and they were being taken away from their parents and put into these institutional settings where people were not equipped to care for them, I, I, something in me broke. I, I just was kind of very fearful because I thought if this can be rationalized, anything can be rationalized. I agree with you 100%. That was a big turning point also for me, watching the children screaming inside those cages. And, you know, obviously based upon my father's childhood, it was personal. And I cannot believe that a man who I thought so highly of for so many years, and that, that again was my being indoctrinated into the cult of Trump, into Trumpism. Uh, I agree with you. If that's acceptable, anything is acceptable. And then when we talk about going back just to the anti-Semitism that's going on, Donald Trump refusing to acknowledge white supremacy and watching these these um, white supremacists walking down the streets screaming, Jews will not replace us, and he not saying anything, right? Mm -hmm. And then the notion that everyone's like, oh, well, Donald Trump can't be racist because his daughter, you know, is now Jewish and she married an Orthodox Jewish guy and uh, the grandchildren. Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about his daughter. He certainly doesn't give two shits about Kushner or his grandkids. They're basically props. Mm -hmm. And now, now, now that, you know, the election is over and 
rest assured, it'll go back to basically all the three kids trying to fight for daddy's affection and love because he's a very selfish man. They were props. And had he won the election, yeah, he would take one of the kids, walk around the the garden, you know, for a few minutes. I mean, when was the last time Joy Behar brought this up on an episode that is right before this one and said, when was the last time on television that you saw Donald Trump put his arms around Barron, put his arms around his youngest child mm-hmm. or give him a kiss on television? I know I saw that from Barack Obama mm-hmm. on thousands of occasions. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to try to pick and choose one, Right. Constantly, when they were taking a photo and they were all together, he's got his arms around one of the girl's shoulders and with a, a, a fatherly hug or a kiss or, you know, like a pinch on the cheek, something, right? Not as Joy Behar brought up, you know, that he would, if Ivanka wasn't his daughter, he'd like to date her. I mean, there's just a sickness in this man that for some reason, 74 million people just choose to overlook. And I'm not sure if it's because of their 401k or their or their pocketbooks or what have you, but I can't imagine that there's 74 million stupid people in this country. I just can't. Yeah, I refuse me, to and, believe there's it. There's something else. There's something else. And I think that there's um, a, what I was calling and, and writing about it. I said there's a kind of malignant charisma that he has that you know people connect to, and I think that because you know, for where I grew up, the, the worst thing that you could ever be was a mark. <laughs> you know, if you were a person that just got conned or you were suckered, you know, you would suffer twice. One from being conned and, you know, one from being ridiculed after the fact. And so it's always been a kind of skepticism going like, oh, well, you know, what's this guy trying to sell me, you know? And, you know, Trump never passed that test <laughs> for me. Not from the beginning. It was easy. It's like, oh, okay, this is a hustle. But it was astounding, the fact, that, to see that people don't really think that way. Like, that's not, um, you know, what comes to mind with them. Or that more people voted for him in the midst of the pandemic when I think it was then like 300,000 people were dead, you know, and, you know, 10 or 15 million people had caught it. And the economy had tanked and all those other kinds of things going on. And, and then, you know, the person said that we should inject ourselves with disinfectant. like just completely in even if you took all the other stuff the racism the sexism the anti-semitism the the narcissism misogyny the misogyny the the xenophobia the homophobia the islamophobia all all of them you took all that stuff off the table this is just a person who's in over their head like oh okay this is not the job for you you know like uh if he was a pitcher, you would have yanked him for a reliever in the fourth inning, you know? Yeah, Jelani, of course Donald Trump didn't pass the test. According to his sister, Judge Barry, Donald Trump never passed a single test in his life. Yeah. Yet the fact he sits there, he tells everybody he went to the best school, he's got the biggest brain. Yeah, whatever. So one of Trump's most frightening legacies is the proliferation of many Trumps who have sprung up all over the course of this administration. In many cases, they're slicker and smarter. And in other ways, they're even more insane, like this Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. How do you think that the GOP, and for that matter, the country, prevent the ascendance of Trumpism in the future, as it seems quite embedded to the party at the grassroots level now. I mean, the GOP really has a lot of problems to deal with. I mean, I've I've literally been talking to people about this exact thing. And, you know, I think people don't know. 
like the the one thing that may happen is that there'll be some kind of fracture, you know, that people who think of themselves as, you know, fairly normal, moderate people who believe in small government and low taxes, uh, but actually don't believe in the kind of paranormal craziness that the, the other wing of the party indulged and embraced, that those people might wind up someplace else. Uh, and, and there's a real good chance of that happening. The other thing is that, like, the math doesn't add up. The The number of people who you are appealing to is dwindling. The Republican Party voters are between 80 and 90 percent white. And the country is moving in the opposite direction. You don't really get to appeal to these other people if you're running around saying, what is it, that uh, there's a Jewish space laser now, <laughs> you know, that that caused forest fires. And it was like, I mean, if someone said that, and I don't mean to, I mean, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to people with mental health concerns. If someone said that to me, I would think this was a person who was in mental health crisis. It was a person who was in need of, <laughs> who was in need of intervention. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Donald Trump is in need of a serious intervention. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because crazy sometimes appeals to crazy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's just how I see it. But actually, John, you're actually, you're a funny guy. People don't realize that you have a very, a very witty sense of humor. Uh-huh. On January 24th, well, you're welcome. On January 24th, you tweeted, and I thought this is one of the funniest tweets I've read in a while. We normally look at presidents and point out how quickly the office ages them. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that the president looks the same as he did on election day, but the rest of the country looks 10 years older. <laughs> I was struck with how absolutely true this is, mm-hmm. and yet fucking hysterical because it's true. You know, it's sometimes true. comedy, right? Most of the time, really funny comedy is based upon truth, which is why David Chappelle and you know so many others like Chris Rock are so damn funny. But every other president, the aging is unmistakable, right? right? But Trump literally looks the fucking same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little. May, look, maybe a little more orange, right? right? But the rest of us. He's worn us out. And I know I've aged. I definitely look older over the last 10 years. Discuss this with me. It's true. It's, I think it's true. You know, I was looking around. I don't remember what he was doing, but he showed up on, um, on TV for something. And I was like, man, this dude looks the same as he did when he was campaigning. And everybody ages. Clinton aged. Bush aged. Obama aged. Carter really aged. Like, that office and the stress of it just put years on you. And I was like, this dude looks the same. And I was like, oh, it's the rest of us. Like the rest of us look 10 years older uh, because we're up in the middle of the night, you know, hoping this dude's not going to launch a, a nuclear strike on someplace or hoping that he's not going to get us into a war because he wanted to buy. What was it? That he went, Was it Greenland? Like where was like, yeah, it was either Iceland or Greenland. Iceland or Greenland. It was Greenland. one of the he two. He wants to buy some plays. I just, who could sleep? Who could sleep in that kind of world? And so I just was making light of it. But it really is, you know, how I felt. I felt that, you know, we were, all the stress associated with, you know, four years, really five years of dealing with him was showing up on us. Yeah, I was just really more concerned that I keep my hair Right. Uh, I mean, whether or not that it's turning gray, that's another thing. I mean, look, try doing a year in prison during that four years and I'll take your 10 years and I'll raise you five more years on that. I mean, this was that was another rough. That was another thing. But Donald Trump didn't see the job 
as being stressful, right? Which is amazing to me that you're the, you're the leader of the free world, that it's not just the United States and all of the 360 million people that live in this country. But, you know, there's that old expression, a strong America is a strong world. A weak America is a weak world. He had the entire world, right, basically waiting for something intelligent, something meaningful to come out of his mouth. Why did Obama age the way that he did? Because he took the job seriously. Right. Because he actually got up every morning and he read briefings and he was read and he was reading memos and he was studying various different aspects of what he needed to do, right or wrong, whether you like the policy or not. He was studying in order to try to figure out how to accomplish something on behalf of America. Now, it's again, whether you like his policy or not, it didn't matter. It's he was trying to advance a policy. Name one policy that Donald Trump advanced. Everything that Donald Trump did was by executive order. And I want to talk to you for a second about something that I've become very you know, passionate about, and that's prison reform. Mm-hmm. What did Donald Trump do? He signed a fucking executive order. He got Bill Barr to do, I think it's 18 U.S.C. 3632, which is the first step act. Mm-hmm. And that was in order to take certain individuals of federal, you know, federal prisoners where there's no violence. You didn't get any shots. You were a perfect inmate and that there is virtually a zero chance of recidivism and reunite them with their family and allow them to become you know, members of society again, so that they too can pay taxes, something this country desperately needs, Mm -hmm. right? As well as allowing the family to reunite and to reacquaint the person with the community, their friends, and so on. Well, what's happened with that? What's happened with any single policy that Donald Trump has promoted? There's not a single thing that he accomplished other than trying to tear down everything that Barack Obama had created. Right. Interestingly enough, Joe Biden is doing to Donald Trump exactly what Donald Trump tried to do to Obama. Right. He in one week, one week's time, he's basically annihilated virtually everything that Donald Trump has has in his mind accomplished. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was interesting, too, because one of the other points about it was that when you tried to find like the issues that Trump believed in, he would be on both sides. Of, of issues. On the one hand, he would say, I did criminal justice reform. Um, on the other hand, he would tell police officers to, to be more brutal when they were arresting people. Uh, he, he had uh, Jeff Sessions uh, push, you know, what was essentially furthering the war on drugs, saying that they wanted uh, the death penalty for, for drug uh, dealers. Uh, and, you know, all these kinds of things that went in the opposite direction. Like, and so, there was no real pinning him down on policy, but the one thing that made the most sense, the one way that you could understand the various actions and positions he took was the desire to undo everything Obama did. You know, like, well, if Obama did it, then I'm going to do the opposite, even if it was, you know, absurd. It's like Obama is in favor of breathing oxygen, so I'm going to outlaw oxygen, you know? Um, and... You know, I think that was the kind of main guiding line you know, for, for what he did. If he didn't believe anything, what he believed was the opposite of whatever Barack Obama believed. Well, his goal was to take away the legacy of our first um, black president. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples, of course, is the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Now, again, do I think the Affordable Care Act is perfect? Not even close. 
it needs it needs work, right? And instead of Donald Trump trying to make the Affordable Care Act better and to improve it, he just decided that he was going to wipe it out. Why? Because if he made the Affordable Care Act better, it would still always be known as Barack Obama's. Mm-hmm. And he could not live with that. So he would rather spite the whole country, which of course is, you know, not having all Americans have insurance, which should be a, you know, a, an American right. Instead, he would rather tear it down. And what did he tell everybody? He said, don't worry. I got a much better plan. Right. It's going to be much better. It's beautiful. It's going to be great. You'll see. It's right. coming out very soon. Well, where the fuck was it? We never saw it. Four right. years later, there was no, there was, no, and not only was there no act, not only was there no um, health plan in place, he never had intention. All he wanted to do is do the simple route, which is to allow insurance companies to operate over state lines to create a, um, you know, a, an open market so that they start competing against one another. That was his plan for health care for all. It's an ignorant, arrogant, you know, ideology, right? It's, don't worry, they'll, it'll control itself very much like the pandemic. Just let herd immunity, you know, knock it out. We don't need anything. But yet, he still wants the praise and he wants the Nobel Peace Prize for the vaccine. I mean, that's just the crazy that you're trying to deal with. That's pretty amazing. No, I mean, I I had not heard the the vaccine Nobel Prize thing. But the the thing that's interesting is that um, something that Tony Schwartz said early, uh, you know, in the the Trump campaign, we said he does not have the capacity to to focus on details, you know, the ways that, you know, presidents need to actually think about what the implications of their actions are and, you know, think two steps ahead. You know, if I do this, this will happen and that will happen and so on. He was like, he doesn't do that. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons why it in the last three months, maybe even six months, he just stopped dealing with the pandemic. We were just out there. You know, it, there was no real coordination. There was no real push. It was just, you know, whatever happens. You know, at first he was like, it's going to disappear. Like uh, that number will be down to zero. Where anyone who knows anything about epidemiology, that's the basics, knows that if you have 15 cases that you know about, that means you probably have 150 cases that you don't, uh, and that this thing is already escaping and spreading and moving around unchecked. Uh, but it was just the kind of like, just tell people this, just tell people that. Uh, then there's the hydroxychloroquine thing. There was always like the kind of thinking of the kid um, who's like, if I just do this, they won't know I didn't do the homework. Yeah. Well, that's that's Donald Trump. And, you know, I guess Jared was too busy, you know, fixing Middle Eastern peace problems and everything else that the secretary of do nothing was responsible for. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there was nobody there that was actually monitoring the House. Trump just wanted to sit there. Did you ever notice in all the photos, whenever they had cameras inside the Oval Office, Mm -hmm. that Donald Trump's desk is empty? Right. There's a, there's a couple of mm-hmm. facts, pieces of paper and so on. But did you ever notice that his desk is always empty? No, and I've I always wondered. I remember the folders with the fake documents. <laughs> I remember a <laughs> time with the, the folders with the documents that didn't appear to have any words on them. Um, 
Yeah, that was that was in the briefing room. Right. But if you if you look back at photos mm-hmm. of Donald Trump in the Oval Office behind the Resolute desk, mm-hmm. um, it's always there's empty. nothing on his desk. Mm-hmm. Right. And I always wondered how the president of the United States can actually have nothing on his desk. It just didn't make any sense to me. Now, of course, you know, he wants to project strength while sitting there. He's got everything under control. I don't know what's going on in the man's mind, assuming that there's anything going on there. Everything with him is a, it's a stunt, right? It's Mm -hmm. all the apprentice 2.0. And that's really what it was all about. And you're right. Having no game plan for this pandemic, it's not just stupid. I believe it should be criminal. I really do. I believe that the 400 plus thousand deaths are on his watch and he and Mike Pence and so many others should be held responsible. Not to have a plan during a pandemic. It's not just enough, in my opinion, that he should lose the office of the presidency. I think there should be much more serious implications. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I agree. Can I ask something else that's unrelated, you know, since like I'm talking to you and and this is like something that, I mean, it's not the deepest question, but it is something I was curious about, which is that um, in the wake of the Stormy Daniels um, situation, one of the things that I anticipated in this White House was a ton of sex scandals. You know, I thought like this was going to be a guy because of his notorious record of infidelity within his marriage. I said the the Washington press corps is going to have a field day uh, on, you know, the various, what do they call them with Clinton bimbo alerts? You know, maybe people don't use that term anymore, but, but that really didn't happen. And I was like, were people managing that? Like, how did that operate? But that, that really never, of all the things he did that were horrible, that never actually came up as an issue, not anything in the White House, you know, lots of stuff before the White House. You know, it's a great question. Um, Donald Trump, like when he was John Barron, was always trying to promote that he was this sort of sex symbol, this um, man about town, that he was desired by women, you know, Everywhere that he went, that if he walked the streets, there's thousands of women that just want to touch him and love him and care for him. He's got some real issues. Mm-hmm. It's all a lie, just as John Barron was a lie. The women aren't attracted to Donald Trump. Maybe they like his money, mm-hmm. you know, but they're not attracted to him. And the number of scandals that, you know, exist, you know, I don't know what happened in his early days. And I've had this conversation again, like with Joy Behar on the previous episode where we were talking about uh, Eugene Carroll. And I'm not going to be the one to say that it did not happen, that what they're claiming did not happen. Those are years, 30 years before I ever met the man, mm-hmm. right? What he was then and what he is now, I don't believe the man has a sex drive. I believe mm. that it's, again, all big propaganda bullshit mm. that he's trying to spew about himself, that he's still this 75-year-old manly man about town. He wasn't a manly man when he was 20. Mm. So, you know, that's just the truth, which, of course, would maybe give a reason for his aggressive behavior with these various mm. women that are claiming. I mean, that's what do I know? It's it's just merely my my guess. But, you know, Jelani, as we're winding down the hour... I want to ask you this. On inauguration day, 
You wrote about Joe Biden's first address saying, what strikes me about this speech is both the recalcitrant insistence upon national unity counterbalanced by statements like the declaration that white supremacy must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Discuss with me and my listeners what you believe Joe Biden's vision of unity to actually be. And does it mean compromising or somehow accepting MAGA beliefs? Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting about that is I don't know where Biden will come down on this because that speech sounded far less even-handed than he has tended to be in his career. But he also had seen the Capitol overrun, you know, just two weeks before that. And so that may have kind of shaped him in a particular way. Uh, But he did not seem to be saying that in the name of national unity, we have to accept or we have to diminish the danger that this movement poses you know, it seemed a very sober-minded speech, but still one that was, um, you know, spiced with enough idealism to say that we have all these things in common as Americans, that we have a common creed and a common uh, belief in democracy and that, you know, we're one nation, et cetera. All the things that presidents are expected to say that most presidents would say um, outside of the one that preceded Joe Biden. And at the same time, he did not seem at all naive about what the obstacles to achieving that kind of national unity were and and how volatile those obstacles are. And so I really hope that that is the way that he approaches governing, uh, that he has both eyes open and he's looking at the world um, through the lens of the very, very dangerous movement that placed a person as wildly irresponsible and unfit as Donald Trump in the White House. Yeah, you know, I, I see it very similar that the, to the way that you do. I think we all grow in our lives. We all change in certain ways, and the hope is that we'll change for the better. So mistakes that Joe Biden may have made in the past, like during the 70s or 80s, you know, that obviously came up during the um, the – in the nominations, right? Uh, who was going to be nominated as the as the uh, Democrat? And it was a it's a problem. But as you get older, and he's in now the you know the golden years, as they say, you sort of change and you grow. And I I always talk about this with my mama and my papa, and you know we we talk about this a lot because again you know going back to my father's upbringing and you know my mother's um, acknowledgement of it and in furtherance of my father's beliefs, the same exact uh, thing portrayed to myself and my siblings, that we're one race, that we're all just one race, and it's the human race. And if you can't respect the guy next to you simply because his skin is a different shade, or if you can't love the guy next to you because he prays to a different God, it's not them that you have to look at. It's yourself. And you have to really turn around and start to say to yourself, what am I lacking in my life? that I need to be bitter or hateful to somebody else simply because they're different. We're all different, Mm -hmm. right? You know, whether it's the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, the size of your nose, the size of your ears, right? You know, what's the difference? Because, you know, it's funny. I had a a guest on uh, that once was talking about how he's a big fan of Star Trek. 
I happened to be also. We all were, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't that many. I mean, come on. Remember this, Jelani? There were like five fucking yeah, television I that. stations. Right. right. Uh, there were five <laughs> I mean, only, and, only three of which you actually wanted to watch. <laughs> right? So you had Star you had Star Trek on. It was a big it was a big show. Do you remember the episode where there were two groups and the Enterprise comes down. One is white on the left side left and black side, on the other, side. and then, yep, and then the right side. And, and the hatred and the constant fighting and the and the it was it was an eye opener for me at a very early age. Considering what's the difference, right? I mean, mm-hmm. half black and half white, and then the the other side. Simply because, well, what happens? You know, it's this is exactly what's going on. You know, right now, you know, hating. It's not even hating between black and white anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's now Republican and Democrat. Mm-hmm. And the notion that Republicans and Democrats refuse to work with one another in government, I truly believe if you cannot work, work with the person who's on the opposite side of the aisle, get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Right? Nobody needs you. You're no good for this country. You're no good for your state and the people who elected you. Let it go. Time to leave. Like Jim Jordan, who I understand is not going to run again. Good fucking riddance. The mm-hmm. guy's no good. Right. Maybe now that he's out of office, maybe he'll buy a jacket. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I have anything to add to, add to that. Um, and like Mark Meadows, you may remember mm-hmm. Mark Meadows, who I, I think is a fucking moron. Mark Meadows paraded this girl named Lynn Patton, who used to be a very good yeah, friend of mine, yeah, yeah. black girl, the only, the only black person to work in the, entri- in the entire Trump organization, yeah. by the way. Right um, up in the floors, she was an assistant for Eric Trump, and I got her the job. She was my friend. That's how I brought her into the company. And he was parading her out there to discredit me in the claims that Donald Trump is a racist. Mm-hmm. Well, he obviously realized he was going to get his ass handed to him, and so he ended up leaving. But he left after kissing enough of Donald Trump's fat ass in order to what? In order to then become his chief of staff. It's a complete joke. It's like incompetence asking more incompetence to come to work for you and expecting a positive result right or at least or at least a result that you can spin as positive to people who aren't um paying that close of attention or people who just believe anything that you say this this topic got my blood pressure up i'm gonna have to go take my my medicine right i mean talk about stupid right i mean it's just crazy and i just really if if i have any wish it's i really wish that you know, there were more people like Elijah Cummings who truly wanted to work the aisle, who was just a good, decent man. And there are. They just have to figure out how to break across the aisle so that we can actually get stuff accomplished. Because the last four years has really set this country back at least at least a decade. Yeah, so yeah. I want to just I want to thank you so much for mm-hmm. your time, for your insight, for, you know, being you and um, stay safe. Thanks. Good luck. And now for today's mea culpa. My conversation today with Jelani Cobb is a potent reminder of the importance of understanding and internalizing the long sweep of American history. It's been said that Donald Trump was our first post-literate president, but he eschewed intelligence and intellectual curiosity for impulse, immediate gratification, and the approval of his MAGA faithful who disdained expertise as much as he did. In Trump's mind, he was reclaiming the swamp from the egghead elitists who had mocked and held him at arm's length for the majority of his working life. Fascism decrees that action is the most important outcome. 
The poet Ezra Pound, in his defense of Italian fascism, decried that liberalism in itself was the product of indefinite wobble, meaning the free exchange of thought and the very idea of pluralism was an anathema to the state and basically was just a big waste of time. Mind you, Donald Trump didn't understand any of this. He was a fascist by impulse in that he had no intellectual mind of his own. The underpinnings of Trumpism as an ideology was created by people like Steve Bannon, whose ultimate goal was the fascist desire to smash the administrative state. All of this, of course, was mere window dressing for Trump's courting of our darker angels and support of white identity politics. MAGA voters saw themselves as the last men standing within Trump's vision of American carnage. He wanted people to have no sense of history so he could then define their futures. If he did channel history, it was to broadcast his desire to return America to 1952 or name-check Andrew Jackson as a personal hero, admiring his populist fervor without knowing or discussing his slaughter of native people and Jackson's own history as a brutal slave owner. No, for Donald Trump there was no point in looking backwards. He simply was not interested. The goal was to move ceaselessly forward. Action for the sake of action. All that mattered was the moment and the news cycle. He may have even gotten away with it had there not been a pandemic. He certainly thinks so. That said, how do you predict history? It simply unfolds. And for Donald Trump, his hunger for ceaseless action fell victim to the reality of the pandemic which required planning, expertise, and the same administrative state which he vowed to dismantle. Everything he dismantled and that his followers disdained were the very things that would save us from sickness and death. We saw how well that worked out for them. Let us now finish the job of holding Donald Trump accountable. Fucking impeach him. Prevent Trump from ever returning to Washington so we never have to repeat this moment again. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. insurance with geico is so easy your neighbors are probably already doing it but who 
they may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. And now it's GEICO's Motorcycle Rules of the Road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. What, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where, Where is he? And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, Geico could save you 15% or more. What's the room again? Uh, 1240, down at the end. Ooh, what's that? Sammy, don't touch that. That's someone's old food. Here we are. Do you have the key? You have both of ours. Oh, right. Not working. Rub it. Come on. Try flipping it over. Seriously. Why can't we go inside? Just, honey, let me try. I'm tired. Give me yours. You have mine. All right. What? Please, if you Dad, could just... why aren't you opening the door? Can everyone just shut the... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.